And we are back for another episode of AlphaCast. My name's Mike Winter, and I'm here as always with Dr. Bear Paul Lando up on the Smith River in the beautiful state of Jefferson here on the border of California and Oregon. Today we have a, an amazing show uh, with uh, a guest that I've been really looking forward to, David Crow from the Infectious Myth Podcast. Uh, the world is now under the delusion of a deadly new virus that has emerged from wild bats in China. To date, the purification and the characterization of the alleged RNA identifier for COVID-19 is embarrassingly, embarrassingly flawed, replete with false positives and circumstantial at best. David Crow is the host of The Infectious Myth, and his paper, Flaws in Coronavirus Pandemic Theory, is a timely must-read. David will be discussing problems with testing for COVID-19 and why we can't necessarily believe what we hear when it comes to statistics on the situation with coronavirus. David has emerged as one of the most influential voices in uncovering the truth behind current pandemic uh, fears through his brilliant research and insightful writing. As usual, our discussion will be an open-ended AlphaCast fashion and not to be missed. How's it going today, guys? How are you today, David? Very good, thank you. And you, Dr. Lando. And I'm doing well. I'm doing well also, Michael. Uh, David, uh, thanks so much for being with us. Um, you know, your, your, your work is phenomenal and, and, of course, so timely with what's going on in the world today. And I'm really looking forward to this. Um, you know, as, as you're aware, probably we've had a, a number of guests uh, uh, talking about the whole viral situation and contagions in general. Uh, I, of course, also have my own opinions uh, on it based on my experience. And what we really want to do for our audience is just give uh, a nice, well-rounded approach so that people can make up their own minds. And I, I believe from uh, some of your amazing work that I've uh, you know, read and listened to that we have a lot in common. Uh, we might have some things you know, where we slightly differ, but that's okay because I think what we all agree with is that there's more to the story and uh you know we just want to get the truth out so thanks so much for being with us and i know we don't have a lot of time today so i'd really like to follow your lead and uh you know maybe anything you know recent that you think is more important that uh you know we we need to hear about or certain things that aren't uh you know being uh discussed in the public dialogue um, just feel free to take it wherever you want and and thank you again yes well if I can if I can start I think my training for coronavirus was the SARS epidemic in 2003 SARS is also supposedly coronavirus and um, you know I've started writing a book and my chapter on SARS was pretty complete but you know it just wasn't going anywhere but when this coronavirus thing happened, I dragged my chapter out of storage and, and updated and, and got it almost to the point of completion. But some of the things I found were that the SARS virus had never been uh, purified, uh, that it wasn't really transmissible. Uh, the, the best example of that is a rather humorous accidental experiment that was performed in China um, where they had a, a floor of a hospital which was half full of AIDS patients. They needed space, so they filled it up with SARS patients. So you have what was seen as the most infectious virus known to man at that time on one half of the floor, and uh, you have immunosuppressed people on the other side, not just HIV positive, but people actually experiencing Im immune suppression. There was free airflow between the two halves. Uh, the patients could mingle. One AIDS patient was accidentally roomed with SARS patients. And at the end, there were zero uh, AIDS patients who became infected. Um, the, the other thing that I, I noted was that um, there were some quite dangerous and ineffective treatments that were used very consistently. And those included um, cort high-dose corticosteroids, an antiviral drug named ribavirin. And if anybody knows AIDS, ribavirin is quite similar to AZT the ferocious drug of the 1980s, and, um, and intubation. For example, there was a, a, a study in Hong Kong that compared uh, one hospital that didn't like intubation, uh, they only did it when necessary, versus 13 that used intubation right off the bat 
for every SARS patient. And uh, the death rate was four times higher in those 13 hospitals. Uh, they said, well, maybe this one hospital didn't have very serious SARS patients, but they actually found out it had more serious. They analyzed the, um, the benefits of, of um, corticosteroids, and they found no benefits, and uh, things like uh, bone depletion to the point where people needed um, uh, hip replacements, et cetera, and also neurological damage permanent neurological damage. And then with ribavirin, they found a higher death rate, liver, uh, liver damage, uh, uh, hemolytic anemia. So all in all, what we, what we found, or what I found was that um, there was no proof there was a virus. There were treatments that were given to almost everybody that were dangerous or deadly. And uh, the evidence for transmission was not there. So the whole thing fell apart. There really wasn't anything left after that. So it's, it's like SARS was created out of whole cloth. There was nothing there. People panicked and they imagined that they had an epidemic on their hands. And of course, uh, you know, along with that, you have a test. And if the test is positive, then, you know, you, you say this person's infected. Um, and so with coronavirus, it's just SARS on a much, much grander scale. And, and also, although uh, SARS had kind of a safety valve in the definition where the the spread of the disease was self-limiting by definition. The coronavirus, they decided to take that out. So as long as you continue testing on a flawed test, which produces false positives, you will never stop getting cases. You, you could test 10 years from now, you would still have positives. Yeah, and then it also brings up the whole subject of uh, what exactly is a virus. I do believe there are certain things that act like virus. Um, it's too much of a discussion to get into here, and we've done it a lot on our other podcasts and, and with Andrew Kaufman when we talk about exosomes, and I share my experience as far as cell fragments and how they operate in a similar fashion and actually are part of nature's process as far as helping clean up the body. So. Uh, you know, I became a little suspect of the whole virus um, um, explanation a long time ago because I practiced differently. I learned from different people along the way that were prominent virologists and had different ideas. And then when I employed different types of uh, techniques in bioterrain medicine to people, especially with AIDS, I mean, I can't tell you we had... Um, uh, many, many AIDS patients over the years uh, and other kind of viral conditions, hep C and so forth. And when, you know, we treated them differently, uh, tested in different ways to discover certain things that were really going on, we found that, uh, wow, it doesn't at all fit the narrative of what we're telling people in, in addition to the fact that people get better uh, you know, when you just don't fall into that, um, you know, whole viral explanation and start taking all the meds that are, uh, you know, recommended when you're diagnosed with such a condition. Yeah. Um, I mean, with AIDS, it was definitely uh, a terrain problem for many people. Uh, a lot of people connected uh, early AIDS cases amongst gay men to the use of poppers, uh, a carcinogenic and immunosuppressive drug. It was, uh, you know, a, a sort of a sexual, it was a recreational drug that had sexual purposes, uh, quite dangerous, and some people were very heavy users, and those were, uh, in many cases, the ones who got AIDS. And so it was, it was as much stopping damaging the terrain, you know, as, as it was anything else, right? You, you had to stop the damage you were doing. And then of course you've damaged your body, you need to rebuild it. And that's where you would come in. I'm not an expert on, on um, treatment. One of the important things about viruses, you talked about viruses, is that for example, in the first paper on, um, uh, you know, Chinese paper on this supposedly new coronavirus, they, they found uh, you know, a 30,000 base RNA strand. And then they had some pictures of particles. And I, the important point is that those pictures of particles are completely unrelated to anything else in the paper. There is no proof that those particles contain the RNA. You cannot look at an electron micrograph and say, 
oh, I can see the 30,000 base RNA. You, you don't even know if those particles have RNA in them, let alone the RNA you're looking for. And there's only one way to prove that that 30,000 strand RNA is in a viral particle, and that's to purify it. First you purify, then you break it down so you end up with proteins and RNA, and then you sequence the RNA, and if it's the same 30,000 uh, base, bases, then you've, you've proven that the virus contains, contains that. So although I think the exosome theory is very important in that it explains what these particles might be, you know, if not viruses, what else could they be? Well, they could be exosomes. That doesn't necessarily mean that those exosomes contain the RNA we're looking for. Uh, the RNA could very well be endogenous, produced by our own body. Um, it, you know, and there's some, some of the correlations between testing positive um, are, are things like air pollution, right? Like Wuhan, um, Northern Italy, London, England, New York. These are places with high levels of particulate air pollution, nitrogen oxide, all those other air pollutants. And people, there's a correlation between testing positive and also dying. So you, you have people who've, who've had their lungs damaged for many years. Um, as you probably know, the people who died generally had multiple pre-existing health conditions and were very elderly. And they were treated, I think, quite abusively. Like in, in New York City, um, in, in one study, of those over 65 who were intubated, 97% died. Chinese published the same number, 97%, like 31 out of 32 or something, uh, died when intubated. And even for younger people, it was still 76%. So basically all this, this furore at the beginning of, we need, more in, uh, we need more ventilators. You know, the ventilators are life-saving. It was the complete opposite of the truth. Uh, the truth was the ventilators were killing people. But that's not all. They were also putting a lot of these elderly, frail people on antiviral drugs, corticosteroids, antibiotics, even though they thought this was a viral infection, um, and, and you know, throwing whatever experimental drugs at them they felt like. So um, whether it was remdesivir, or they, they were using some arthritis drugs, or uh, chloroquine, or hydroxychloroquine, uh, and I know there's a big dispute over hydroxychloroquine, but it's um, it still, um, for elderly people, you know, it's not clear that they need drugs to get out of the situation they're in. They might need some TLC. That might be way more effective than anything <laughs> else that they're getting. Not to mention, yeah, too. Yeah, and everything. Go ahead, Mike. I was just going to say not to mention, too, hospitals aren't really the most TLC-friendly places. Uh, so when you go into them, um, you know, they're very sterile, sterile especially now with, um, with wiping down everything. Um, psychologically, as soon as you enter a hospital, there's a, for me, there's a feeling of dread. <laughs> so, yes. you know, so, you know <clears throat> that's something that really needs to be considered uh, is the psychological aspect. But um, anyways, go ahead, Bear. What were you going to say? No, I was just going to make a quick comment that, you know, everything you described, David, as far as the protocols within the hospital, if I took similar measures on my crops outside on our farm here, I'd kill every freaking plant in the whole place. Um, yes. You know, so, and that's the thing that, you know, medics just don't get is an ecosystem is an ecosystem. And, you know, before I went into alternative medicine, I did work in emergency medicine. And, uh, you know, and, and during my internship, I had to spend a few months with a respiratory therapist and go around and intubate, you know, the great numbers of people every single day. And uh, if anybody has ever seen somebody intubated, it's, uh, <laughs> it's very harsh. And, uh, you know, and it's not going to help your health one bit. And if you're already on the ropes and frail to begin with, it's, it's uh, very likely going to increase your mortality incidence greatly. T totally agreed. I mean, I, I spent some time studying um, intubation and I consulted with a, an emergency room MD, a former emergency room MD in New York, Dr. Khan. And, uh, you know, I hadn't realized that they had to paralyze the patient as well as sedate the patient because you can't stick a tube down a living human being without them fighting back. And um, I found a couple of papers that described 
um, the, you know, they interviewed people who survived intubation and some of them described this nightmare state. It was, it was like the locked in syndrome. You know, their body is fighting this tube down the throat. They're awake, but they're so heavily sedated. Nobody knows they're awake. And for days or weeks, they're just lying there in this nightmare. You oh, know, it, it's, it was just, it almost made me sick to think of what these people had gone through. I mean, you've got to have PTSD after that, right? Like you, you would be. Yeah. Well, if you really understand what's happening, it's, it's, it's like being suffocated. It's very akin to waterboarding. I think you can't I, breathe on your own. You have this thing shoved down there I and mean, it's torture. Yes. Yes, it is. Now um, in emergency medicine, it has its place. If somebody's, uh, you know, already passed out and you just need to, you know, patent an airway and, and keep their vitals going. But other than that, forget it. Yes. Sorry. Um, my, my most recent, um, I have an article, which I don't think is being published yet. It was supposed to be published by a website that seems to be sitting on it. So I might just publish it myself. Um, but I said that um, the, the, probably the biggest cause of death um, was banning of visitors from nursing homes that it did exactly the opposite of what was intended. The, many people think, you know, we didn't lock down nursing homes soon enough and that caused infections. Well, you know, I think there's no virus, there's just people testing positive. And also in nursing homes, there's lots of people presumptively uh, given a COVID diagnosis, you know, recorded as a COVID death who've never been tested. Um, so the statistics are total garbage coming out of the, uh, the nursing homes. But um, when you withdraw the visitors, it causes a cascading effect. First of all, directly, the visitors provide social interactions for these old people. It, it gives the old people something to live for. They can see their daughter, their grandchildren, their son, you know, maybe some friends, um, and it gives them something to look forward to. The visitors also take a load off the staff, right? They will feed their relatives, they will get them dressed and out of bed and they will brush their hair and, um, you know, do a lot of things that the nursing staff would otherwise have to do. So the nursing, or not, it's not, I shouldn't call them nursing staff because in nursing homes, many, the vast majority are not nurses. And in many cases, they're not really trained at all. Um, the, the staff now were faced with, with no assistance from visitors, um, quarantine staff members, to reduce the, the load, and staff members who just up and quit because they were so scared of being infected and dying, even though the risk for a young person, healthy young person of dying, even if the coronavirus existed, is essentially zero. So now you've got um, you know, a low, lower staff levels, and that is ripe for um, neglect and, and abuse and unsanitary practices. In Canada, in five nursing homes, the government asked the army to go in to give assistance. And they wrote a report that is definitely worth reading, uh, got leaked to the public. Um, but they, they noted things like catheters being left in for three weeks. You know, a man left in his bed for three weeks. Um, uh, somebody being fed food through a tube and the, the food had curdled, it being left so long. Um, you know, diapers unchanged, uh, people not washed for a long time, uh, not receiving regular food, being left, uh, you know, somebody falls asleep with food in their mouth and being left to sleep with food in their mouth. The, it was plus abuse of the staff, right? Like roughly pushing these old people around, you know, hurrying them up, you know, if you, if you want to get them changed or something like that. Um, so you have to say that that is going to cause a, a lot of deaths. And then um, in many countries, they did not want nursing home patients in ICUs. They were very reluctant to transfer them because of what they considered to be the risk of infection. And um, in Spain, it was kind of official policy that you do not send nursing home patients to ICU. So what do you do with a nursing home patient who has something simple like an infected wound that's, that's getting worse, right? You need to go to the hospital to get it cleaned out, some antibiotics, new bandages, et cetera, et cetera. So what the uh, Spanish Palliative Care Society said 
was you put these people on palliative sedation. I, I think you start with halperidol, uh, some cases morphine, halperidol. Um, and as their pain increases, because they're not getting treated for their health condition, you increase the dose. And, and I mean, at, at some point, the person is just put to sleep. And, and I think this is, is really the cause. In every country, like in, in Spain, when they went into nursing homes at the beginning of the epidemic, they found dead people lying in bed. They found people lying in bed who obviously hadn't been looked after for, for days. Uh, Italy, the, the similar thing. And, and so I think we created a disaster of nursing homes. Nursing homes uh, had a bad reputation for a long time, justifiably earned. But if, if you have no oversight and no social connections, people are going to die. And whether it's they're dying of loneliness, they're sedated to death, they're, they're just not looked after, um, you know, basic sanitation is not used and they, they die of a you know, some an infected wound or something that's just not being looked after. It's it's horrifying. Yeah, I, I would say the Absolutely. whole the whole COVID thing is just uh, where the lens is is pointing the lens to all the uh, broken systems in our society that are really remnant that are really coming from allopathic models of treating the symptoms and not the cause. And we see it, at, I mean, it really goes all the way up to corruption and everything in our society, but it's really magnifying and and what the what those that are proponents of pushing the narrative of covid are really good at at pointing that lens where they need to to amplify just like the pcr test does right amplifying um specific uh, uh symptoms and effects to then point to the cause of a uh, contagion when um it's i mean it's really a brilliant ploy and i mean quite personally i believe the germ theorists have painted themselves in a corner here david because if you extrapolate where we're going with this with sports, you know, with the NFL now talking about bubbles and the players being in bubbles. I mean, uh, how are kids going to play sports moving forward? I mean, going back to school, parents are really concerned about this, social distancing, the masks, et cetera. I mean, where, where are we going with this? I mean, it's really kind of man's ego trying to conquer nature here. And um, I really feel like germ theorists, this is going to finally backfire in them because it seems like, the if you extrapolate this out the, the answer is the vaccine and we've seen right now with these with the well we know about vaccines but even like on a so let's say you believe in vaccines look at what's happening right now with the trials of these vaccines i mean it's nightmarish i mean there's no guarantee that that a vaccine will will work even if the the uh, standard for approving it is is highly flawed as as they all are i mean hiv is a good example in in 1984 when there was a press conference announcing um, that HIV was a cause of AIDS prior to any science being published. Um, the head of uh, hum, head, Health and Human Services, I forget what her name was, she said, we expect to have a vaccine in two years, or maybe it was Robert Gallo. And there's been uh, over 100 vaccine trials for HIV, and there's no vaccine. So this idea that we can produce a, a vaccine by September is, is, is just a dream. Uh, I read somewhere by some mainstream vaccine scientists who said, you know, the, the average uh, time to develop a vaccine is 10 years and about 90% of them don't ever get marketed. So, you know, even though we have way more vaccines than we need, you know, there's, that is only the tip of the iceberg compared to what people, you know, tried to develop. And, and uh, notables such as Bill Gates that are uh, in on the so-called vaccine development are already uh, requesting indemnification for whatever they come up with. Well, I mean, everybody has indemnification for vaccines, right? I mean, if you want to sue anybody, you sue the U.S. government because the U.S. government has taken over um, responsibility, you know, in the 1980s. And, and that's, you know, basically led to a free-for-all because, you know, I, I don't think the drug companies go into it. I mean, I'm not a total cynic. I don't think people in drug companies go in and let's, let's create a dangerous vaccine and we'll kill people. I think they go in and they'll say, you know, we'll do the best we can, but it encourages sloppiness, right? It, it, it's, it's like somebody who, who knows that their boss is not paying attention, right? They're, they, they don't really tend to be sloppy, but over time, their standards slip because there's nobody telling them, 
you know, you can't do this. You need to clean this up. You need to fix this. You need to do this, right? This is well, and you nobody. Have, and you have board members for profit too. So, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. a, prof it's a profit model, not a health model. So that's- Yeah, yeah, that's basically profit is the, profit is number one. Um, you, and, also, you also have a great compartmentalization uh, with all the researchers and the biologists that are working on these things. So they'll be working on some little component of a project and not even know that that's going to be part of a vaccine someday. And, uh, you know, another whole story, but there are several hundred uh, researchers worldwide over the past couple decades that all discovered that their work was being, you know, put into effect in something that they were unaware of and was actually very dangerous. And when they tried to blow the whistle, they, uh, you know, had accidents, we'll say. Sorry, I cut you off there, David. No, I, I, I think that the um, science, the reductionist approach to science also has led to this kind of reductionist approach to project management, right? Like you, you have somebody who's, who's working on, uh, you know, one component that can be used in multiple vaccines, right? And they, they really have no idea what this will be used in. Um, so they have really no awareness of the overall product. So, so there's a relatively small number of people who, who really understand what the whole product, the completed vaccine will do and what the dangers uh, to that are. I think one of the problems, um, you know, I spent a lot of time studying the PCR test at the beginning. Uh, I actually went as far as interviewing uh, Professor Stephen Buston, who's one of the world experts on PCR quality control. And uh, you know, finding numerous problems with the tests, such as that, you know, the tests are looking for different things. Some are looking harder than others. And, and you just can't assume the results, you know, the positive negative results you get from different tests are, are meaningful. Plus the obvious problems with the PCR tests, like people who test positive and then negative and then positive. And, you know, does that mean they were infected? yesterday and today they're not infected and tomorrow they're infected again, but they're in a hospital in isolation. Like where'd they get infected from, right? There's numerous um, examples of this, but the antibody tests also have their own problems. Like antibody tests theoretically should sum up everybody who's been infected. So let's say January is the start. So if you do antibody tests in May, that should be everybody who is ever infected in January, February, March, April, May, except people who have a current infection who haven't developed antibodies. And the PCR test is the people who are infected today. And yet the number of people who test positive on the PCR test is consider generally considerably higher than those who test positive on the antibody test. Like that just, the numbers just don't add up. And their, their belief in the antibody test, which has never been proven to actually be associated with a virus, is so great that they're saying, you know, doesn't look like we have herd immunity. We only have two or three or four or five percent of people testing antibody positive. There's no evidence that having antibodies stops you from getting whatever this disease is, stops you from getting the RNA. And there's no proof that not having antibodies allows you to become RNA positive or allows you to have the supposed COVID disease. So the antibody testing is really not panning out the way that they want it. And just like with the RNA tests, the FDA said, we're going to give you emergency authorization. You file some paperwork. If the paperwork looks half decent, your test is approved. So there's really no validation of all these tests. For example, there's no cross-validation. You've got 33 or something FDA approved RNA tests. Has anybody ever you know, tested 100 samples on all 33 to see if they get the same results? Wow. Like it would be all over the map. <laughs> yeah, that is wild. Uh, and, you know, going back to the vaccine thing real quick, you know, what's the other, um, you know, variable in terms of, of people being sick? We know in China they have mandated vaccines. We know Italy highly vaccinated. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's another self-fulfilling prophecy there in terms of the vaccine uh, creating the toxicity that then creates the illness, just like with AIDS, with the, uh, what was it, the uh, Hep B um, uh, vaccine yes. in 1978, mm -hmm. where there's a lot of connections there with that. It, yes, there, there's generally a, a lot of environmental connections. 
and air quality is is definitely one of them. Like I, I think uh, that the reason people are testing positive in prisons uh, is probably because of the poor air quality and the fact that people in prisons are indoor far too much of the day, right? Some as much as 23 hours a day. Um, and even when they go outside, it's not exactly fresh air with grass and trees. It's like a yard full of gravel or something. Um, I'm not, I'm interested in the meat packing plants because, you know, it's, I'm not sure if there are air quality challenges in meat packing plants, but there, there may well be. Um, but it's interesting that in these places, people are testing positive, but there's very few people who are sick because generally the population of prisons and meatpacking plants is younger and, and it's not in the zone of 70, 80, 90. And uh, they're, they're not generally people with multiple pre-existing health conditions. Like you're not gonna be working in a meatpacking plant if you have uh, kidney disease and diabetes and heart disease, right? You, you couldn't take it. Uh, there are people in prisons, of course, who have, uh, you know, it's an aging population. There are some, but most of them are probably fairly young and robust. So not at, at danger. Yeah. So another thing that's come to light or, or just say uh, into the discussion, and I believe I heard in one of your interviews, you were um, ambivalent about it maybe, but tell us, uh, does the role of 5G or, <laughs> or all the microwave, uh, you know, well, we have to bring it up because it's such a big thing and, I, and you I, may I, not necessarily believe in that. Yes, I have to confess that I'm a, my day job is as a wireless consultant. So I have a conflict mm -hmm. of interest in that, you know, my income has come from wireless systems since the 1980s. Um, uh, on the other sorry, hand, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's important that everybody knows that. Um, on the other hand, I do, I do know a little bit, and um, uh, it's not clear what people mean when they mean 5G. Like, um, 5G involves a, a somewhat new modulation system. It's not dramatically different from 4G. Um, it does involve higher frequencies, and they are, in theory, talking about going up to 60 gigahertz, which is the, the, um, the frequency that interferes with oxygen, but it's highly unlikely that 60 gigahertz would be used in your phone because the signal weakens so quickly through the air. It gets absorbed by the oxygen. There are some systems, like Verizon is currently using 30 uh, gigahertz, but the coverage is extremely small. So when they said they put in 5G in, in Wuhan, for example, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that was, um, some people are using the same frequencies, like around one gigahertz or two gigahertz, which is kind of the current um, frequencies that are most commonly used. Um, I don't know what frequency they were using, and I don't know how much of the city was covered. I would say that 5G is sort of a fill-in system and it probably was like downtown pedestrian areas, shopping malls, things like that. Um, so the old people, you know, who are dying of COVID are probably much less likely to be in those areas because they're less mobile than young people. And uh, like as in everywhere, this has been a, a disease of, of sick old people who in many cases are stuck in a, in a, a home. They're either stuck at home like in China, they're probably more likely stuck at home with their relatives, right? Mm -hmm. Sick old grandpa's in bed all the time, and we look after him. Whereas in Western countries, he'd be in a nursing home. But in, in both cases, the exposure to 5G is probably much less likely for those people than, um, than what, say, a healthy 20-year-old. What about, though, the idea that, well, first you have the Internet of Things, and that's where 5G, to me, makes a lot of sense because they need to connect this matrix of new online, um, you, know, uh, you know, from your refrigerator to your toaster oven. And I guess the idea is that kind of uh, everything becomes this, like, informational matrix, but also there's a lot of story about, you know, hospitals having 5G and you're correct. 5G is just nomenclature for the fifth generation of wireless. But the question is, what are these frequencies and what are they being implemented in terms of Wi-Fi, not just cellular phone, but um, and with like the, you know, the, the you know, connecting all the all these different devices so that we're constantly being bombarded. All well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if hospitals have more RF emissions from equipment 
right? Every yeah. electrical cable produces, um, you know, uh, radio emissions. Yep. Um, but it, it seems too early that there would be large 5G systems because first they need to prove the technology in public spaces. And, and then people can say, put in a IOT system in their factory, right? Once you got a proven technology, uh, a big warehouse or factory uh, decides to, to put in a monitoring uh, system. There, there may be some outdoor monitoring systems, right? Like if you have monitoring on electrical uh, systems or, or telephone cables or something like that, um, there, there could be 5G systems, but this is all um, pretty early. So yeah, I'm, I'm just a bit skeptical that these low power levels, like for example, the average cell phone in an urban area transmits at 0.01 watts, um, whereas a microwave oven transmits similar frequencies at 600 to 1200 watts. So we have a massive difference. And we, we know that a microwave oven can injure you, right? You put your, if you were able to put your hand inside a microwave oven, you'd have probably fatal burns um, from, from it. So it, it really is the matter of the amount of energy, I think. And, uh, you know, I haven't seen any analyses of, of, you know, what is the energy that people are receiving? There, there could be cases, you know, near, um, you know, a tower with a large number of transmitters where, where the level of energy is too high. I, I can't say that, that that never happens. Yeah, and they're talking about having these on people's homes. There's discussion about that in the United States already to, for these repeaters. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, obviously it's how close you are. You're, I think the phone's important because it's on most people all day long where a microwave oven is mm. much, you know, you, you know, we don't have one in our house for those purposes. But um, yeah, are you familiar with Arthur Furstenberg's book, Visible uh, Rainbow, and uh, uh, his, his words about, about, about the satellites? So he was recently on a 5G summit, and he said we have three months left before we have catastrophic health impact because of all the uh, low-orbit satellites being put up by, um, you know, SpaceX and such. Have you done any – have you looked into uh, that at all? No. Uh, I mean, I think um, the, the satellites are going to transmit at probably fairly high power, but by the time it gets to the earth, the power level will be low. And, and the reason why cell phone systems or wireless systems keep power levels low is, is not for health reasons or anything like that, although, and not for energy conservation, although those are considerations, but it's to avoid interference. If the satellites were to transmit at a really high power level, then they would interfere with all terrestrial systems. So they have to be tuned such that when they hit the surface of the earth, they're at a similar power level to, um, uh, to a terrestrial system, which is around 0.01 watts. So um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, in the past, all these satellite systems have been commercial failures. And there's good reasons for that. There were a lot that were put up in the, I think in the 1990s. Iridium, Global Star, and they all went through several bankruptcies, yep. emerging as, you know, they, they sort of survived, but they'd been sold for a dollar a couple of times before um, they, they sort of achieved any commercial success. So you might be able to buy one of these yeah. systems in, in five years for a buck. So. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, I hope it's, so. It's a huge discussion. It's a huge discussion, and I don't want to get bogged down, and I'd like to move on to something. But, mm. uh, you know, in my clinical practice, we've absolutely identified the, those kind of electronic frequencies as impediments to health. And when we take measures to remove them and do other things, people do regain their health. So in my mind, there's no, um, no doubt that they do affect our bodies. And uh, there also seems to be good evidence that a lot of these frequencies have been weaponized, uh, you know, by military for quite a number of years. And, and of course, that doesn't mean that everybody in the telecom industry is in on it, you know, just like when the vaccine injury, uh, industry. But, um, you know, I, I, for one, am not comfortable knowing that, uh, you know, there is technologies that could be modified 
in ways uh, the way the military, for instance, has done it, you know, to affect populations or adversaries. So, uh, but anyway, uh, that's good. I, I really appreciate your, you know, just your comments, especially since you are in the industry and you definitely know a lot more about those uh, frequencies than I do. Um, so here we are, you know, we're a number of people that are out there just presenting information to people because we do understand we have problems. Uh, we do understand that the cure for, uh, you know, the most prominent problem we have now is worse than the problem itself. And, uh, and even though uh, all the flaws that, you know, we're discussing here relative to, um, you know, diagnostic techniques and so forth, um, you know, the, the system uh, or the powers that be will say, seem to be doubling down on our efforts and preparing us for phase two. So other than, um, you know, us just out there trying to, uh, you know, conclude some kind of truth out of this, uh, what's, what's our next step if these guys just keep doing st stupid things? Well, there are so many, you know, I'm at the extreme end of, of the viewpoint saying that the coronavirus doesn't exist. There are many mainstream doctors and scientists who, who fully believe that coronavirus exists, that it can kill people, things like that. And they're still objecting to the lockdown. They're, they're saying that the, you know, the death rate is like 0.1%. You know, there's lots of different calculations, much, much less than originally calculated because, you know, at first they only tested seriously ill people. And so the death rate was high. If you test the general population, you find a huge number of asymptomatic cases. None of those die, uh, certainly not of, of anything related to COVID. And so the, uh, the fatality rate drops. Uh, others believe that the only way to get herd immunity is to get young people circulating and infecting each other, getting immunity. And so then when they circulate with older people, they're not transmitting the virus. So you don't have to be a radical to say that this is an absolutely insane thing. And, and I think what we've seen with politicians is that they pointed, painted themselves in a corner. They decided to take these drastic measures, which, which not only destroyed the economy, but killed people through suicide and increase in the number of people dying from drug overdoses and alcoholism and domestic abuse and people who, who needed to go to the hospital for something who didn't and who died waiting to go to the hospital. Um, there, there's innumerable um, you know, reasons why people uh, died. Uh, so the politicians have done this, but when was the last time you saw a politician come out and say, you know, I, I'm really sorry that I destroyed the economy, that I killed more people than I saved, and we shouldn't have done it. Now, I think the prime minister of Norway did this, so kudos to him, but you know they're still attacking Sweden. Uh, you know where there's really no difference between Sweden and and uh, other European countries. I mean they're kind of in the middle in the terms of the death rate. The, the politicians cannot extricate themselves from this because they cannot admit that this was a problem. And my big concern is that there'll be another call for you know a lockdown due to next year's flu or some other virus that they cock up. And the, the same politicians will say, well, we should do the same thing we did last time. It was so successful. Yeah, we're in an existential crisis right now because of germ theory. It's like, what are we going to do? You know, once, you know how it is when they set the bar, it's very few that we go back, very few times that we actually regress back to the way it was before. Right. And we're seeing the World Economic Forum now having talks about the new normal and pushing all this forward. And that's what I was mentioning earlier. It feels like germ theorists have really painted themselves in a corner. We, you know, this whole concept of a new normal. Do you think humanity is going to go with this? Going to to restaurants with, uh, you know, uh, I think it was James True said the world is now a, a, a massive salad bar with plastic in front of everything. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, are we just completely losing our humanity and our connection to nature here? We're really in an existential crisis, and I feel like. It's we need people to wake up to the real science and start demanding um, that we have a common sense approach to these things. Otherwise, where is this going to lead to? It's going to lead to a complete disconnection from nature, ourselves, living in bubbles. Um, you know, it's really quite frightening. 
a common response that I got from people was after a bit of discussion was, I'm going to trust the experts. And, and so our approach of science, the, the approach of the average person in the street to science is as a religion. If you have faith in your leaders, they're, they're priests. They're, they're not scientists. If you don't question what the scientific leaders are saying, you are not taking a scientific approach. If, if somebody says, I'm going to trust Tony Fauci, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe what he says. I mean, you, of course, it's a bit difficult because he's contradicted himself so many times, but you pick what he said today and say, I'm gonna believe it because it's Tony Fauci. Then you're participating in a religion and not science. If it was science, you would challenge what Tony Fauci said and you would never take anything for granted. And we've been trained that you can, you can adopt scientific beliefs through faith. And that's essentially what people were taught in religions 200 years ago. You can get enlightenment through, you know, listening to the words of a spiritual leader. And, and you know, you, could, you can get some things from that, but it are, you can't get the truth from that. You're just getting what your spiritual leader is telling you, and it may or may not be the truth. So what we're looking at is they've perfected the science of ridicule because uh, you know, in my own experience, uh, you know, we encounter individuals that uh, are more afraid of being ridiculed by their peers or the rest of society than they are of death itself. And of course, uh, you know, fear is a big tactic, but it seems like there's just such a need to conform um, and, and, and such, a, you know, an even deeper fear that, uh, you know, you'll be shunned by your peers if you don't say the right words, if you don't wear a mask, if you don't believe the narrative. So, uh, you know, I, I think the scientific community has, uh, you know, gone to great lengths to perfect social engineering. And uh, I wish they'd put as much effort into real science. Well, the masks are quite funny because, uh, you know, there's as much evidence against them as, as for them. There's not really a lot of good evidence saying masks work. I mean, clearly they work in a surgery, right? If you've cut somebody open and you don't wear masks, you're probably gonna infect them. That's a very special circumstance. Uh, we're, we're talking about walking down the street. But I mean, I've seen many times people say, well, you should just wear a mask out of politeness, right? You know, I'm wearing a mask and um, I'm trying to protect you and you should wear a mask to protect me. But the thing is, if you choose to wear a mask and it's effective, you don't care what other people are doing because your mask is protecting you. Why would you want other people to wear a mask? You don't need it. It's like the vaccine you, thing. <laughs> yes. Same thing. Yes. It's, it's just utterly um, ridiculous. You should have a choice. And if you choose not to wear a mask and you're wrong, you'll get infected and die of COVID. And that's your fault. But if you're right, and then, then you're going to have a more pleasant life because you're not always going to be breathing, you know, in the moist air, restricted air that you have with a, a mask on. And of course, the average person is wearing a mask that does absolutely nothing. Even if you want to believe in the whole virus thing, uh, they aren't uh, wearing the, the proper type of protection. We used to say the same thing back in the uh, AIDS days that, uh, you know, if you look at the, the pores, the micron size of pores in a condom compared to the size of, um, the virus. you know, the, the alleged virus, it would be like putting a, a ping pong ball, you know, out in the middle of the 50 yard line of the LA Coliseum or something in comparison. So yeah. mm -hmm. it, just nothing adds up. Yeah, it, it doesn't. The masks are a symbol. They're a symbolic, uh, the symbolic that you're, you're bowing down to the coronavirus God and you're either doing it willingly because you're paranoid and, and you're put, you put the mask on because you really believe you're going to die or you're doing it because you have to. Like I, I've had some health problems recently and I've been in the hospital and I have no choice. I can't go in without a mask. Um, it's very uncomfortable and I don't like it, but it, it's like, I'm not putting the mask on because I'm, I'm respecting your God. I'm putting a mask on because I have to. If I want to fly, um, I probably have to wear a mask, you, you know, under duress. Um, you know, whether, whether this will go on because I, I Life with a mask on all the time is, is terribly uncomfortable. And, you know, people who take their masks off, you know, they breathe the fresh air and they have a much better life.
in in the United States right now, at least where I am, it's like those, and I'm probably going to get some flack for this, but those wearing masks tend to be Democrats, and those not around here tend to be Republicans. Well, it's, <laughs> it's kind of kind it's funny. kind of interesting. As as kind of, always thought of myself as a left leaning person, and um, you know, on health issues, uh, conservatives are generally better. I mean, it, it, there's there's a lot of conservatives who are big into coronavirus, but there's there's more who question it. There's, there's more who've refused to go along with it. And there's very few liberals who are, are, are questioning the, the viral paradigm because they've been taught that, you know, Republicans are anti-science and we're pro-science. And what pro-science means is you take science on faith. Yep. And, and, you know, Republicans, they include people who don't believe in evolution and all kinds of other things. And they oppose abortion and they, they come up with some, um, you know, erroneous ideas about abortion and they promote those. So, you know, there's a little bit of evidence for, for that difference, but it's basically being Republicans who've been opposed to a minority, who've been opposed to vaccines. And definitely in this case, they've shined in terms of opposing um, the, the impositions of the government, like the Southern states, like Texas and Georgia and Florida, that kind of broke the quarantine first right? Everybody was supposed to be dying. Yep. And they've got some big cities there that are actually have less, um, their d death rate and the overall, well, we know it's from the testing too, but uh, infection rate is lower than, uh, than like New York City and, and things like that. And if you just look at, at Los Angeles, because that's where I'm from, you know, if we really had a pandemic and, and you look at the way LA is and with the, the homelessness and just all the issues they've had, um, with other types of infections from homelessness and the population. And, you know, you're not seeing it there. You're not seeing the infection rate. You're not seeing the death rate there at all throughout this whole thing. And of course, they'll point to that it's the lockdown and it's, you know, what, what the governor's done. But if you actually look, people aren't paying attention. Like in Orange County, no one's really done anything. They've been all going to the beaches. They've been rallying about it. And they're not seeing, seeing what, you know, we saw in New York. So, you raise anyone with common sense sees there's something up here politically. Well, I mean, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations have not resulted in a surge in cases. No, and I saw an interesting uh, study, or not study, excuse me, report saying, going back to the <clears throat> Spanish flu about how they had these big rallies for World War I to raise money for bonds, and it led to the pandemic out of Philadelphia there. And people were up in arms now saying the same thing's going to happen from when they were doing it in Baltimore and, and, and Philly as well, and New York and all these places, but we're not seeing it. We're not seeing it right now. So uh, it is interesting. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and in terms of the mass thing, you are right. It's like kind of, you know, it will be interesting study, David, is if somebody could actually start to correlate those not wearing masks with those wearing masks, because we're going to be able to probably do some of these studies if they continue this craziness and see what the health, you know, who's healthier, because mm -hmm. we're going to have populations that are going to be basically buying into this and sending their kids with masks on and wearing the mask 20, you know, when they're out in public versus those that refuse to. And it'll be a really interesting study. Maybe on the positive side, we'll be able to get some hard data uh, to see really what the effect is of wearing a mask like this in, in regular life. Yeah, and I think with children, uh, the impact on socialization, um, you know, a lot of people are concerned about trying to isolate children at play. I mean, children need to play together to learn how to deal with other people. Right. I mean, children who, who grow up isolated are, are very selfish, can be abusive, things like that. The, this process of playing, you know, of, of parents or teachers saying, no, no, you, you can't you can't hit your friends. You need to go apologize, all that kind of stuff. That's how you learn how to be a decent human being. Um, and it's how you learn. You know, if I want to win the game, I have to work with the, the kids on my team, right? So there's lots of lessons that you get from that kind of socialization. And this idea that we can, we can put each child into a separate bubble and uh, to protect them from this virus that hasn't killed any children um, and not have to worry about their socialization. I mean, what is this going to do to the rate of suicide and drug abuse to the, these kids when they get to the age of 14 or 16? insanity well if you step back from the cv19 
and just look at everything that's been going on probably for about the last five decades that I've observed, um, everything without exception is doing the same exact thing that the COVID-19 is doing now. It's, it's causing division, opposition, paranoia, uh, and, and just uh, setting up opposing camps. So I don't know uh, if it's just coincidence that this is doing the same thing, but it seems to be part of the same old PSYOP. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, we're, we're coming up on time here, a couple of minutes left. Uh, David, anything else that you would like to address uh, with our community and on the show that is concerning to you or uh, uh, in terms of maybe a solution to where we can go or what your plans are moving forward? Well, I've been hit with a pretty big diagnosis. And so I've, I've kind of um, stopped my coronavirus research just because I don't have time or energy. Um, I, according to the uh, mainstream, I have terminal cancer, um, but I, I want to get through it. And um, it's becoming easier for me because the, you know, the mainstream oncologists really have nothing to offer me. You know, they, they can give some palliative uh, chemo. So I'm, I'm looking at a lot of alternatives, but this is taking all my time and I have less energy. My energy has declined quite a bit. So I'm still doing little bits and pieces of, of research and I might update some of my documents, but unfortunately I don't have the, the uh, energy to go forwards. And I, I'm kind of thinking that I was getting close to the end of this. Like I've, I've gone down all the different dark alleys and I've gone down the antibody testing, the, the other reasons for death, uh, the PCR testing, um, you know, I've, I've investigated just about everything except the, the vaccines, which a lot of other people are doing really good work on. Um, so, you know, I'll continue to discuss it with people, but not add too much, but just, you know, look at the science, right? You, you critically, that's all you need to do and, and read a variety of, uh, of opinions. And, and I think people listening to your show, they're not trusting Tony Fauci and all of these other people. And uh, there's huge financial conflicts of interest. You know, like why is Tony Fauci uh, promoting remdesivir, which is, which is uh, produced by a very politically connected US drug company, Gilead, right? Is there some kind of benefit for Tony Fauci there and and why are, i'm not really a fan of hydroxychloroquine but why are all the mainstream slamming it um you know there's things are being guided by commercial interests and uh very much so yeah they want to delay the end of the lockdown until there's a vaccine which i, I don't think they're going to get um but the more the more they delay it the more damage yeah. there is they're painting themselves in a corner right now. Mm -hmm. It's forcing an awakening. Um, you know, I, and I'm so sorry to hear about uh, your diagnosis. And, you know, that's a, that's a massive rabbit hole that we cover. And, and Dr. Lando has decades of experience in that arena. I don't know if, Barry, you want to do a quick spiel on that. I know we're kind of running out of time here. And maybe I can go a couple. A, I can go another five or ten minutes. Okay. Bear, uh, all you, man. <laughs> Five ten minutes, cancer. Yeah, go. <laughs> like you said, it's a, it, it's <laughs> in in uh, thirty seconds or less. Yeah, it's a massive topic. And uh, one thing I can share, though, which would be more than help uh, hopeful, is that in um, and and again, this is I, I you have a belief system that's been borne out through clinical medicine for forty years. So it's not just a theory or something I read or, or a belief system. It's actually, you know, observable evidence. And that is uh, just like the germ theory, the cancer theory is also extremely flawed. And cancer can become very problematic. But there was a time where when people's bodies weren't inundated the way they are these days with so many things affecting us from so many levels that uh, cancers would fulfill a biological purpose, go full circle, 
And we've got it down to a science where we understand the different phases that a so-called cancer, which is a purposeful biological expression, uh, you know, the way we understand it, um, we, we know exactly what microbes are involved, uh, you know, in the whole process to uh, expedite the process and make sure it goes full circle without a problem. We know what kind of resources are necessary at different stages. And so when in my clinical medicine, I never asked to be in that situation, but for whatever reason and, and the type of work I was doing and what I learned, uh, I saw mostly nothing but cancer. And the folks that did not do the conventional treatment will say, um, it wasn't just a high survival rate, but it was just an expectation that we could guide the purposeful expression that the body was, uh, you know, undertaking for uh, other issues that would take way too long to get into right now. And, uh, you know, again, we just had an expectation that it would go full circle and people would be fine. Um, the, just like with the COVID-19 situation, um, you know, part of the whole thing is we have a belief system that's been fostered by the conventional system that somehow this is deadly and, and uh, you know, we're, you know, just expect big problems if you've been diagnosed with COVID-19 and we find, well, it's not necessarily true. And also there's a whole different story, uh, you know, about microbes that people would be, um, you know, just startled to hear if they could really wrap their minds around the truth. It's the same thing with cancer. And again, um, well, you know, back in my clinical years, when people would come in with the diagnosis, the biggest problem we had was helping get people through the diagnostic shock and then going through an educational process where they would then be able to understand what was really going on and then go through the process and also expect that there are certain times during the process for good reason that your body wants you to rest. It wants you, you know, there's two different phases. One's a kind of a sympathetic response phase and the other's the other side where you're actually in the healing phase. And most people that are diagnosed are actually already in the healing phase, but that's typically when certain symptoms come to play or you start feeling a little washed out or start losing some weight and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, then it suspiciously, you know, feels like, oh, I really am sick. So I'm not at all suggesting that, um, you know, it's not a situation that you, you don't take seriously. Uh, you do want to treat it aggressively, but you want to know how to aggressively work with the body and not impede what it's tried to do in the first place. So again, I'll just summarize because I could go on quite a while in a lot of different directions and things that we would be able to do to assist the body to make sure it didn't get caught on an uncomfortable plateau that could be dangerous. But um, my experience is that it's not at all um, a diagnosis uh, or a prognosis, it should uh, even keep us up at night if we understood what was really going on. Um, one little bit of black humor, the oncologist made it very easy for me to refuse chemotherapy. I mean, I, I wanted to go listen. Uh, you, you know, I've listened to a variety of different uh, doctors and healers. So um, he, the, the basic treatment he proposed was this pill which is known as 5-FU, uh, which apparently oncologists uh, humorously define the acronym as <laughs> five, five feet under. <laughs> and it was developed the same year I was born, in 1956, it was patented. So we've, we've, they're giving me this ancient drug that has known, or they wanna give me this ancient drug with known toxic side effects. And I, I said, if I take it, how long do I have? And he said, two to three years. Unless if you don't take it, but you know, I don't believe there's any scientific evidence for that. So because they're not promising me um, that, you know, I can live the rest of my life. Why would I even consider this? You know, if I was scared and without other resources, then I might do it. But I, I think in a year I would be, you know, a cancer patient with my hair falling out and bent over, walking with a stick, all that kind of stuff. I'm not going there. And even if it doesn't pan out for me, I figure with the alternative treatments, at least I will have uh, you know, much better quality of life. 
for whatever time I have. And we never know how much time we have. Yeah. I don't know what the numbers are at present time, but uh, back when I was in the thick of things about 20 years ago, um, there were some numbers available that uh, suggested that if you didn't do any treatment at all, that doesn't mean you don't change your diet, you don't you know, see an alternative practitioner, you just do nothing. Um, the survival rate w- was up about 40, 50% compared to people that sought conventional treatment. Mm-hmm. So my advice to people over the years, uh, not giving anybody advice now, but I'd say you're way better off if you just do nothing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I have to do something, but... Um... It, it and, and I, I'm going to listen to the mainstream because there are there are some treatments that can can help. Um, you know, even some alternative people have told me that, that they can. So I, I'm not going to you know um, completely go one side or the other. But I'm I'm very very skeptical. And the, the more systemic aggressive treatments are, are just have a horrible record. So not going to go there. So the, the, the only final comment I'll say is, you know, I just, I just, Hey, we're pulling for you. We're wishing the best and, and um, you know, that you can expeditiously get through this expeditiously get through this. Um, I want to come back and, for the next uh, outbreak. I want to yeah. be, <laughs> I want to be pain in the ass yeah. when Bill Gates declares yeah. the next pandemic. <laughs> yeah, but one one thing I'm 100% sure on is your body and everybody's body knows exactly what to do. And the more trust we have in that process and in the biological process that we diagnose as disease, um, you know, then we'll, mankind will say we'll uh, make great leaps forward in, in not just our biological health, but in our consciousness as well. Thank you. I, I do have to go now. <laughs> okay. But it's been a wonderful conversation and uh, great talking to both of you. Yes, uh, David, thanks so much for joining us, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this talk, please go to alphavedic.com. You can join our mailing list there, get all our information, join us on Telegram, t.me forward slash alphavedic. Thanks, guys. Have a wonderful, blessed day. Get outside and grow something. Get your hands dirty. Cheers. <laughs>